Wow, Greg's returned from a massive adventure, and I'm off to off. I've been off doing incredible stuff myself. We realized that you guys have been waiting patiently for this week's podcast, and we didn't put it out there. And it's a good one. It's a good one. one. We're glad you're listening. And don't forget to drink Adrenochrome Cola and subscribe and give us a rating and love your mom. Two outlaws on the lamb, taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Moped Outlaws. We are so excited today to be here with um, Drew. I met Drew uh, this year, earlier in the year for the first time, and uh, that's going to be part of the story. I won't get into that, Um, but we're super excited to have a man of his caliber with us, a man of his good grace and humor, and um, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you, Drew. And where are you coming to us from? It's a pleasure to be here. I am here in Denver, Colorado. Denver. The place where I was born. Hey, me too. Yeah. When I was born there, I was born in a place called Denver or Porter Hospital Sanitarium. So I like to tell people I was born in a sanitarium. (laughs) And you've never left. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I have like a whole like idea of how I want to go about this. And we were just talking about how when you do that, sometimes you miss out on what can just happen in the moment. So I'm going to try to avoid making this into a linear track, but I'm personally curious about how you lived your life and found your path to becoming a healer. Like what was that journey like for you? Hmm. Wild. It was a wild journey and still is. Um, I guess to to start at the beginning, so to speak, I always had a very deep desire to help people. It was always kind of, I guess, part of my my DNA in a way. And my parents always created a really firm understanding of the fact that that was our role as human beings was was to help one another. Um, the deeper journey really began with the death of my father. My, my father died when I was 14. He had cancer, and it was a very long and drawn-out process until the end, and it was very fast at the end, and it caught me rather off guard. I was, I was not really aware of the fact that that was the trajectory things were taking, and my blissful naivete, I had always kind of told myself, oh, this will be fine. It'll all work itself out. And then when it didn't, it left me obviously in quite a, quite a crisis, and so – the ages of 14 to 18 for me were very, very dark. And I didn't have any real role models, especially men around. Both of my sisters who were older than I am had, had left the house. So it was just me and my mom really kind of left dealing with the, the chaos of this crisis. And I kind of just went off the deep end, man. I got into drugs and just every 
everything I could do to numb myself out, I just grabbed onto and latched onto. So by 15, I was severely addicted to opiates and an alcoholic and somehow managing to be somewhat functional. Like I was sometimes going to school and mostly able to show up at home. A lot of the external world, I think, wouldn't have known just how deeply I had fallen into addiction and how how screwed up my whole inner world was, which on one hand was really good because nobody was bothering me about it. And on another hand was really bad because it allowed it to get worse and worse and worse without any intervention. And when I was 16 years old, I had a really profound experience with psilocybin mushrooms. And without getting too deep into the story, I basically took way too much and ended up, you know, in a very perilous situation. I was, you know, butt naked running through a car dealership from the police at two o'clock in the morning and miraculously made it out of that situation unscathed, but it left a very deep impression in terms of giving me the realization that the path that I was on was one that was going to kill me. And over the next six months, I kind of tried to pull things into some semblance of order and just couldn't. And I, I overdosed on opiates about six months later. And that was really kind of the wake up call. Um, I certainly should have died. That was really, you know, there's not really a logical explanation for why I didn't, but the sense that I got from that experience was that there was more that was being asked of me and more that I was supposed to do. And so I was kind of on the precipice about to go and it felt like I kind of just got snatched back, you know, and, and the message was like, I'm not done with you yet. You know? So at that point, I really started to make positive shifts and it's a very slow process. You know, I was, I was still very naive and ignorant in terms of my approach to life and just kind of got lucky. I had some good mentors cross my path who were able to give me some really practical wisdom to lean on. And one of the things that kind of came through to me at that point was, you know, the military culture had always somewhat appealed to me. I had always felt a great sense of pride and, and patriotism in terms of the ideals of what America was. And I had a cousin at that point who had joined the Marine Corps and a lot of family members who had served. And so I decided, you know, what I need is to kind of get whipped into shape a little bit. And so when I was 17 years old, I asked my mom if she would sign the um, the contract to let me join the delayed entry program to get into the Marines. And she did. And so my entire senior year of high school, I was in the, uh, basically in the, in the streamlined system to prepare you for the Marine Corps. And when the I was devil 18, dogs. exactly. Semper Fi, baby. Um, and yeah, I joined the Marines when I was 18 and as, as God would have it, there was another plan for me. So after about three months in the Corps, as I was preparing to be deployed and um, go study my MOS and get into school, I, I went on leave and I came back with some, with some cannabis and I got kicked out of the Marines for smoking weed. And so, wow. <laughs> so all, three months journey in the services. It was longer than that because I spent like the whole year prior, I was ingrained in the culture and I was going up to um, the different bases here and down to the Air Force Base and doing a lot of workup is what they call it. So I had been really ingrained in the culture. But yeah, in terms of my contractual obligation, I was fulfilled three months out of a four-year contract. And that was a dishonorable discharge then, yes? 
Well, it should have been. It should have been. I had developed a really good relationship with my platoon commander and the master sergeant that was in charge of that entire battalion. And they basically told me they could no longer keep me in their ranks, but that they didn't want to destroy my life. They saw some potential in me and they had appreciated the leadership qualities that I brought into the work I had done at that point. So um, they, they didn't give me an honorable discharge and they didn't court martial me. They basically just um, cut out my contract and said that it was for medical reasons that I was no longer medically fit to serve. And so I got, I got very, very lucky in that regard. So um, you should have been dead. You should have been dishonorably discharged, possibly brought up on charges. You got some guardian angels, Drew. Oh yeah. And that's just two of many stories. There was, <laughs> there was, this was the theme that I began to realize in my experience. Um, there was a lot that played into me realizing, Oh, okay. There's, there's some, there's something, somebody looking out for me. And you know, at this point, again, it was a really dark period because I had put so much energy and invested so much time into this pathway forward, and now that's not going to work. So now I'm 18 years old. Everybody I know has graduated high school, is in college, pursuing something seemingly, and here I am like living back at my mom's house with zero understanding or, or thought of what am I going to do next. And so I got a job at a, at a law firm. I was just pushing paper and that was some of the most miserable time in my entire life, just stuck in a office under fluorescent lights all day. And it really caused me to kind of question like, okay, something, I'm not doing something right. So what do I need to do? And I just guessed, I was like, I'll just go to college. So I went and enrolled in the community college. I moved in with a buddy. And that's when I started to have some really powerful experiences with LSD. I had not touched any what I would have considered at that time, any hard drugs for three and a half years. And when I did psilocybin, that freaked me out. I was like, I'm never doing anything like that again. So a buddy of mine kind of introduced LSD to me as this very spiritual experience and a way to really come into a greater awareness of self. And I had never really considered that aspect of psychedelics before. Lo and behold, I had some profound experiences that really gave me a much deeper sense of self and a much deeper sense of purpose in terms of understanding like, okay, there's something greater that I am not paying attention to. My focus is, is distracted by all these very surface level things, primarily at that point, success and reputation and the idea of what are people going to think of me if I'm just, you know, a loser at a community college. And so I really started to realize that that was this, this very illusory perspective. And I started to get into mindfulness, meditation, breath work, yoga, really started to shift the way that I ate, really started to shift the way that I treated myself on a physical level. And, you know, from there, I like to say that everything kind of just started to happen. My passion since I was 12 years old was music. I always loved making music and between the ages of about 15 and 19, I had made a lot of music and I had gained a lot of traction with my music. I had, I think, probably five to 10,000 people that were following my music and downloading all the songs that I would put out. And I started to get offers to play shows down in Denver and to really kind of put myself out there more. 
So there was this kind of dual world I was living in where on one side I was like, go to college, figure out what you're going to do for a job, and then everything else will work out. On this other side, I had this deep creative pull to just pursue this passion and this dream that I had. And one night I was on my way to a show down in Denver, and um, my buddy had had taken me on the back of his motorcycle, and we, we got into a motorcycle accident. The back tire of his motorcycle blew out while we were on the highway, Guardian angels got me, you know, he was able to kind of maneuver the bike to the side of the road through traffic. And it got down to about probably 30, 40 miles an hour. We both jumped off and did some duck and rolls and neither of us had a scratch on us. And nice. so wow. that night I, I realized that I, I was, I was at kind of a crossroads and I realized like this life that you have is valuable and it's, it's valuable in a way where you can't just put it off in terms of figuring out what you value and pursuing those things, you have to just go for it. And so I dropped out of school. I moved down to Denver. I moved into a little three bedroom house with my, my producer and another guy. And we just, we just roughed it for a couple of months. We just made music and performed and just really engrossed ourselves in this pursuit. And it started to work out. You know, I started to have a lot of big names in the industry, reach out to me for collaborations. I opened up for some of my favorite artists that came into Denver that their management team reached out and said, we want you, we want a local to open up for the headliner. And so I started to really gain this, this traction that felt like at that point success. I was like, Oh man, this is what I dreamed about. This is what I've wanted. And I'll never forget. I opened up for this guy who I had, I had been following his journey for eight years at that point. He was a very, very well-known artist. And I, I opened up a show for him and we had a crazy after party and it was, it was like the moment, like I made it. And I woke up in the morning and I just felt totally empty. And I I had this come to Jesus moment where I realized like, this isn't going to fill up my soul. Like this is fun and I enjoy it, but I'm never going to be able to feel fulfilled with this. And that was very difficult because I got really depressed at that time. And I, I kind of, you know, started questioning everything like, okay, am I just, am I just fucking everything up? Am I just every single plate, every single path I take, it seems like I hit this roadblock and I just can't get over it. And I started to have an inkling of the fact that there was a lot of trauma informing my decisions at this point. I started to have this recognition that like my nervous system wasn't actually programmed to allow me to feel safe. And just so happened that, you know, one afternoon I was um, scrolling through Facebook and I got this Facebook ad for a, a healing retreat in Costa Rica. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I kind of clicked and inquired and I got on a phone with this guy who's like, yeah, we work with ayahuasca. And I'd never really heard about ayahuasca before. I had known about DMT and these things, but it was the first time that I really opened my mind up to the possibility that there were other entheogenic and psychedelic plants out there that were ceremonially used for the intention of healing. And it just grabbed me. And I, and I just, for the next couple of weeks, I just couldn't shake this sense that that's what I was supposed to do. And so I sold everything I owned um, to pay for this retreat. I had, you know, an entire professional music studio set up that I just sold. And I, I basically just, pivoted my path completely. And I went down to Costa Rica and I sat with ayahuasca. And that really is what I think Mark to your question in a long winded way, got me onto the, 
the healing path because I realized at that point through that experience that I did have a lot of healing to do. And I received an immense amount of healing just from that single, I think it was two ceremonies that first time. And it was so impactful that I came back home and I said, you know what, this is not for me anymore. And so I, I got rid of everything and I moved down to Costa Rica and I stayed down there for the next six months. And I lived at a, a shamanic retreat center, I guess is what you would call it. It was basically this space that this beautiful man, Gustavo had set up with the intention of bringing people into plant medicine ceremonies. And I sat in countless ayahuasca ceremonies, sometimes in a receivership role, sometimes in a co-facilitation role, just to make sure people had a, an extra hand in the bathroom or carry out their puke bucket or whatever it was. And that was in 2016. And ever since then, I would say that I have been dedicated to a path of service and that's taken many different shapes and forms, but that's where it began was really getting into the deeper shamanic plant medicine space and then stepping into the integration of that space and starting to work with people in the integration capacity and then expanding that further and, and starting to get into the men's work and working with people who are just in a similar space that I was trying to figure it out, trying to find their purpose and trying just to be the best man that they could be. So I want to ask about that LSD trip. You, the person that you talked about set a container just in the way you described it, they began to say, hey, there's something available here that you might not fully get. And I'd love it if you talk for a minute about what that first container was like, how he set you guys up for success, and then how setting a container for this kind of ceremonial activity is creates a different result when it comes to these kinds of experiences. Yeah, you know, retrospectively, I'm able to appreciate it a little bit more. In the moment, it was honestly fairly casual. Uh, we, My buddy and I, we moved into this apartment together. And the first night we moved in, he basically suggested, man, we should take LSD. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And he's like, no, man, like this is a new space. We're going to be stepping into this new phase. Like we should, we should take some LSD and just allow ourselves to experience like the newness of this. And allow ourselves to experience like the how beautiful this next step of our journey could be and, and, and absorb that. And I was very hesitant and I kind of explained to him the negative experiences I had with psilocybin. And he basically just explained to me, like, listen, man, you were not prepared to go through that journey. You didn't even set an intention. You didn't even have a, a space that could hold you for that experience. We have this beautiful space that's ours. We don't have to go anywhere. We can just hang out. If you have a bad experience, I'll be here. Like we'll work through it in whatever way we need to. But he, he more or less just kind of reassured me that, hey, it's okay. And the, the cost benefit is worth it. Like we could have an enlightening experience that maybe is scary. If it's scary, I'm not going to just leave you here. So he didn't necessarily set it as a container in the way that I would now consider that. What he did was he removed the fear of what could happen by, in, by assuring me, hey, the worst thing that happens is you and me ride this thing out and I'm not going anywhere. So he gave me that support to know like, hey, it's okay. We're in a safe space. There's nothing that we need to leave for. So you're not going to feel this compulsion to just go, which is what had happened my first time. And I think, like I said, yeah, retrospectively being able to appreciate the importance of a container 
for experiences like this. What he did was basically tell me, energetically, we are tied together through this. So anywhere you go, I'm going. And we're going to go to some beautiful places. I don't think we're going to go to a scary place. And that was, it was almost like he gave me the confidence to say, oh, okay, maybe that's the truth. Like, let's actually explore that. And um, yeah, it was a really beautiful experience. A lot of it was really just playful. Go ahead, Greg. (laughs) I've heard a differentiation between the LSD trip and the ayahuasca trip in the sense I hear that the LSD was a prologue. And the ayahuasca was the real story. Is that real? And what is the differentiation between the two if it's real? Yeah, it definitely was real for me, at least in that sense. Um, The differentiation, I think, was primarily intention. I didn't necessarily go into the LSD experience thinking I need to do this healing work. I went into it kind of with this open curiosity of like, hmm, I wonder what I don't know about myself. And those experiences were oftentimes very fun and very playful. I remember that first experience. We just laughed and laughed and laughed for hours. We laughed. And there was not really a deeper context to it in terms of what came up for me. It was very much like, Hey, you are free within this sentient awareness to be in joy if you so choose. And here's what that feels like. So why not choose it? Right. And then as I got into the deeper work, the meditation and the yoga and a lot of the breath work, that's where I started to encounter some anxieties and some fears and some, some blockages, so to speak. And so when it came to ayahuasca, it's almost like I had tried to go down all these paths. It was like blocked here, go this way, block here, go this way. I almost felt like I got fed into that. And it wasn't, it was almost like I didn't even choose it. It was almost like it chose me. And so the LSD had given me an awareness because I had many profound experiences. There were times where I would just go into my room and turn the lights off and put on some head, uh, some headphones with some some meditation music, some 432 Hertz music. And I would go into these visionary experiences, almost DMT like experiences where I was completely removed from any sense of my body. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. That just was kind of the intuitive calling that allowed me to start expanding my conscious awareness. And then by the time I reached ayahuasca, it was like, okay, you have this conscious awareness, but there's a lot of stuff sitting under the surface that you're not actually processing. And it was almost like a plea for help in my world of like, I need more help than what I could offer myself. And I had, I just started hearing all these stories of people saying like, that's what this will give you. This will give you the help to really address these, these deeper traumas in a more direct way. And so I just showed up to that and I was just open to it helping. And I think that's contextually what, what the difference was, was, I never looked at LSD as like, I need to go through a healing process. I looked at it as, hmm, what else is there? Hmm, what else is there? Hmm, what else is there? And I got to the point where it was like, well, what else there is is ayahuasca. And then that is what led me into, yeah, a very different type of experience that was more like a death and a rebirth than an experience. And so does that answer your question? It does. And I'm wondering... You've stated like one of the traumas you experienced was the death of your father. 
were there other traumas you became aware of that were not necessarily seated in this current life? Yes. Um, but they all stemmed back to the same feeling. The main trauma was the fear of losing love and the fear of love going away. And in a lot of ways, like the fear of death was kind of the, the central thing of it. What happens when this all goes black? And that certainly, be, it became a, apparent to me that that was not something new that I was just experiencing for the first time in this life. It was also obvious to me that there was a, a urgency to dealing with it in this life earlier than potentially I may have otherwise. And so I had this very distinct sense that everybody's afraid to die. You've always been afraid to die. I had many experiences with ayahuasca of having very traumatic deaths, right? Being mauled by a tiger as a young boy separated from my tribe in the jungle. Um, you know, falling off of a, off of a, you know, eroding cliff face when trying to pull a child back. I had all these experiences of past lives where I had died in these like horrendous ways and realized that in this life, my, my responsibility was to come to terms with my mortality quickly, as soon as possible. That was kind of like the homework that I got is like, Hey, you're going to die, figure that out first. And then the, the message that I received was more or less at that point, everything else will start to figure itself out. So I hear that you have a intellectual knowing that love is eternal. Yeah. And I would say it's even deeper than an intellectual knowing it's, it's an intuitive certainty at this point. So what I'm wondering is even with that intuitive certainty, do you find the feeling of darkness still comes up where you're feeling that edge of hopelessness, darkness, end of love. To a degree, certainly it's different now. It's more, um, Usually I notice it as an indicator that something is not in alignment. So usually I feel that and it, it informs me that my attention is wandering or that I'm, I'm becoming distracted on my path. It never appears out of nowhere and for no reason, at least it doesn't appear that way to me. So yeah, sometimes it does come up, but usually I've, I've tried my best to be in the practice of, having the awareness of communicating with that feeling to let it inform me what might be missing. Or sometimes it simply just comes up in terms of like, you know, Hey, I'm still here. I still need you to focus on this and process the emotional undertone of this in order to be in the space and in the presence to navigate whatever else comes forward on the path. Yeah. I'd like to return to the thread of, you make this move to Costa Rica and you essentially have this internship with this practitioner yeah. and the level of intentionality 
of being in his presence and the way that he sets up reality around you. And then just sort of talking about the through line of that as part of the path of being a healer and what it is we do when we enter into that sort of intentional state. Yeah. I mean, I could talk for hours on that. I mean, Gustavo taught me infinitely more than I feel even still I am aware of. Um, He set a very, very firm example in terms of what it means to show up and be of service to people. And he also, we would have very deep conversations about it and he would walk me through some of the technicalities, so to speak. You know, like one of the things that him and I spoke about frequently was, you know, you have to be aware of your physical vitality in order to be of service to other people because your vessel is what produces the energy that then the requisite energy to show up for someone else. And, you know, a lot of times he would kind of throw me, throw me into the meat grinder, so to speak, you know, okay, we're going through ceremony tonight. I need you to do this. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And then the next couple of days just like wiped out and, and him being like, so what'd you learn? You know, so he taught me a lot about the the sovereignty necessary to maintain a healthy energetic vitality that then can be shared with a firm boundary. So it's like you don't just go and just give yourself fully because then you're going to end up with nothing left. You have to understand exactly what your capacity is. You have to understand the line when your capacity is being over overstimulated or overrun. And then you have to learn how to hold that line and then to expand the capacity further from there so that you can give more. And a lot of that, like I said, was him speaking on that. And a lot of it was him showing me that and putting me in situations where I just had to learn it for myself. Um, But yeah, Gustavo was, was an incredible man who, you know, built this entire space in order to be a home for this type of work and during my time there, you know, I think, I think a lot of what he shared with me went over my head in the moment, to be honest. I think a lot of what he shared with me was like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I have no fucking idea what that means. But I, I consistently find myself in the reprocessing of those things now. And, you know, Gustavo has since passed on. So I also feel a very much deeper connection with his soul in a lot of ways. And oftentimes he'll just kind of pop up and be like, you remember what I told you? And yeah, I, I owe him a lot in terms of giving me some of the technical um, guidance in terms of how, how to be effective on the pathway of, of service in terms of healing and, and assisting others in their healing process. Yeah. There's this book called Ritual, Power, Healing, and Community by a man named Maladoma Patrice Somme, where he sets up the nature of the indigenous African practices that led that lineage into the kind of healing spaces that can build community. And it seems to me from hearing this deeper aspect of your story that you learned the art of ritual as it relates to the deeper explorations of the plant medicine. 100%. I, I 100% did and continue to. So what would you say about the recent era where we have a lot of people who are descendants of colonizers entering into these 
spaces that are indigenous lineage spaces and how you're being trained to conduct yourself properly in that framework. I trust the intelligence of the plants, you know, from, from what I've been able to see, it's a pretty common thread cross-culturally throughout history that many indigenous civilizations have worked very closely with the plants, both of the entheogenic and non-psychedelic capacity to expand their awareness of the world around them and how to properly interact with that world. And it seems there's a very simple line of thinking in most of those cultures, which is that the earth is here for us and we have a responsibility not to take more than we are given and to be in a harmonious relationship of reciprocity with the earth those who I have come in contact with in that space seem very open and almost desperate to be able to share that wisdom with those who are willing to receive it. And especially as the indigenous cultures of the world have had their lands infringed upon and their cultures taken away from them, there's almost an even greater desire to say, hey, Anybody who is willing to receive this wisdom, please take it and use it because it's not ours. This is not our wisdom. This is not our ritual. This is not our medicine. This is not our process. This is the earth giving us everything we need in order to be in the space of consciousness where we can effectively relate with her. And so I think a lot of people miss that. I think a lot of people, myself included, have oftentimes looked at these experiences in terms of what they can gain from them. And I think the deepest piece of wisdom that I was able to receive being in that space is that it's actually about what you give to the experience. And that's what I felt was like when I went down there, I just had this, this sense of, you know, nothing that I am doing is working. So let me put myself in a space where I can just be used. Let me put myself in a space where I can just give all of my energy into the space and yeah, it was. A, I ran into a beautiful positive feedback loop where it worked, and I was able to then, after I had given so much, oh my goodness, now all of this is here for me. And so I think I was able to experience the wisdom of that reciprocity that naturally exists directly. And for me, that has given me the understanding of, you know, respecting the elders of these cultures, also recognizing that they too are just people respecting the lineages of these cultures, also accepting that those cultures have flaws as well, and respecting that at the end of the day, we are all the seeds of a much higher intelligence that we can't fully comprehend, and that the individual exploration of that in connection and collaboration with the communal exploration of that can create harmony and balance. Our culture is just drastically unbalanced to the former side, where there's just this deep individuation, this deep sense of greed and selfishness, and that these cultures that seem to have found a balance, they just are, are in a much more fluid space with understanding the, the, the dichotomy there. Go ahead, Greg. Um, Mark shared with me that you're a father. And I see yeah. a wedding band on your hand. Yeah. Generally speaking, I think the masculine is very logical words, words, words. The feminine, very emotional, kind of the proof is in the pudding. So 
how have you and your partner manifested what you just spoke of, of that wheel that feeds itself, and that by letting go, you actually are receiving more, while maintaining the sanctity of family and the nourishment and nurturing of home, which has this element of nesting to it? Mm, That's a beautiful question. It makes me a little emotional just to think about. Um, My wife was was present in my first ayahuasca ceremony. That's actually where we connected. And so... (laughs) So, um, in a lot of ways, uh, the answer is just grace. You know, we've just been graced to be in the learning of that together and in the partnership of that collaboration, um, the ineffective lessons have weeded themselves out and continue to, I mean, we still have a lot to learn in our, our, in the, the awareness of the fact that it's not balance we're seeking. It is balancing. Um, I have to give her a lot of credit. You know, she, she has held a lot of space for me to be, in the exploration and expansion of my own masculine presence while holding a very soft feminine container for me to, you know, surrender into when I feel that the pressure or immensity of that is too much. And, you know, she's, she's also older than I am. She's four years, my senior. And so she was a little bit more, I think had a little bit more life experience going into that process that allowed her to kind of be like, okay, let me hold space for this guy to kind of figure some of these beginning stages out. Um, And now, you know, we've just landed in a really good flow where a lot of it is, is just trusting one another. You know, there's times where she just says, take the lead and we're going where you go. And just, I'm, I'm right here behind you. And there's times where I have to pause and go, I have no idea where to go and I need, I need to help. I need help figuring it out. And she's just a really beautiful space holder in that regard. She has spent the last five years as a hospice nurse working with people who are dying. And so I see that play out in our relationship where she's just so good at holding space for the most uncomfortable feelings. And that's really what it is for me is like when I'm dealing with emotions that are just so uncomfortable She's just always there to, to yeah, provide a lot of grace and love into those spaces and let me know like, hey, it's okay. Whatever you need in order to be able to feel this and process it, you are allowed to have that. And I'm here to support you and give you what you need if there's anything I can offer. And then when I'm able to go through those processes, it puts me in a place where I'm able to show up much more fully in a way that then gives her the trust to say, okay, you got it. Now, where are we going? You know, so it's a beautiful dance and it's something that, you know, we stumble in like all, all couples and in all family units, there are, uh, you know, areas where we're both better and worse and areas where we both have our own blind spots and, and continued learning to do. But I owe her a lot of credit because she has always been so able and willing to hold that space for me and to give me the permission to not always have it figured out which as a man, sometimes it's very difficult. Like there's not a logical answer. There's not a space that analytically makes sense to go. Oh no, what do I do? I need control and I don't have it. And she's been my, my greatest teacher in terms of learning how to just let go and learning how to it sometimes just surrender the pathway forward and show up 
and feel what needs to be felt and process what needs to be processed and trust that eventually a sign will become clear. Eventually the road will reappear and like just move forward in a good way with, with the highest of intentions and trust that that is enough. And that's something that I really struggle with because I'm a, I'm a bit hard headed in that way at times. So yeah, I owe a lot of credit to her. And I think the both of us would probably agree in the fact that, you know, we owe a lot of credit to, you know, God and the spiritual nature of reality and the crazy intelligence that's orchestrated all of these synchronistic uh, coincidental events into giving us that space to connect and be together in the way that we are. I feel so much love for the children or at least child being brought up in that space. That's just, that's, that's good medicine for this planet. Hundred percent, and and you know we've our youngest is now two. We're expecting another in January. So congratulations! All right, thank you, thank you. Still, still early in that process, but that's become very obvious to me too. You know, is like the the ability to hold that space for them is going to allow them to hopefully avoid some of the unnecessary confusion and suffering that a lot of us have to sift our way through and give them the whatever is on their path to face, face that fully with your full authenticity and know that there's a place behind you where if you fall, we've got you. And then, you know, you can stand back up on your own two feet and proceed as necessary. God damn. Beautiful. Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a kind of exclamation point, or at least an underline around what the, balancing creates and that when harmony exists, we feel this sense of, of joy and this sense of the flow of the world's energies and working in, in harmony together. And that example you just described is just a reminder. It's another reflection back to us of this is what's possible when we come into alignment with things. And, um, you know, I have a lot of gratitude for her right now because I've been a direct recipient of some of your work, Drew. Um, and I'm going to kind of take this conversation towards that. You do a lot of work um, and you, with this group, the Behold Retreats people. And then also you've started to work within an arena that is held by a man that we've had on the podcast, uh, San Yika Firestarter Street, the all-in man initiations what's it been like to enter into that space from the ayahuasca space and what are the things that are kind of overlapping and and where's the point of inspiration for you in in that movement forward Hmm. so it actually began there was there was a middle piece there where as i transitioned out of the medicine space um, I, I encountered a beautiful man named Berhard and Berhard was actually present on the first initiation experience. We've now had three and he does, does, and, um, is one of the primary facilitators of sacred sons. And they do a lot of this similar men's work and, and deep masculine healing. And so that was actually the space where I transitioned into was from the medicine space into some of the sacred sun space. And the transition was seamless. You know, it was, it was almost, 
it, it was a kind of one of those duh moments where it's like that space is that space and this space is this space and here you are so this is where you should be and for me a lot of the crossover is really just the emotional work right really recognizing that we all carry emotional trauma and emotional residue and that that emotion lives in our body and in our nervous system and we don't typically have at least in western culture oftentimes a space where we can healthily process through and release some of the emotions that are not serving our our highest vision and our highest self and so there's there's almost so much crossover that it's hard to believe they're not the same space obviously with the medicine work you're dealing with what i would consider a more delicate container because when someone's consciousness is open in that capacity there has to be not only physical boundaries in place to maintain their safety but there has to be communal boundaries in place there has to be energetic boundaries in place there's this much deeper space and almost a more firm space needed to really make sure that people can have a safe and an optimal experience with the men's work we're we're a little rough around the edges sometimes and the spaces I think reflect that where it's okay. If it's a little messy, it's okay. If there's kind of this thing goes off the rails over here, because we can bring it back without worrying about someone's physical, emotional sovereignty being drastically impacted in a negative way. Um, now being in, in containers with Seneca, I mean, he, he represents to me the embodiment of the, deeper conceptual and ideological values that I consider to be the most important for men, which is the idea of being committed and aligned to our highest potential all the time and, and, and being in the process of allowing that to be what guides us through life, not allowing that to just be a checkpoint that we land on. And so him and I, you know, in, in the first it was, I guess, actually before the first initiation, we both went on a vision quest with Bearheart and just connected very deeply. And I, I just felt such a resonance with the way that he was approaching this particular space. Sometimes Sacred Sons is a big organization. There's sometimes hundreds of men at the experiences they offer. And one of the things I found in the medicine space was that intimacy is a really key component of that work. You have to be able to sit with someone and to feel their emotion and to be able to, to touch each other and hold each other if necessary. And there has to be closeness there. And in the medicine space, I found it that sometimes you get these big, big groups and it's just not the same level of potency. That's where behold comes into the picture. And I found the same thing in the men's work where if there's not a close knit container and a lot of closeness that can be cultivated within that container, you lose a little bit of the potency. And that's what I felt Sadiqa really understood and was bringing to the table was like, let's work not with mankind, but with men, with individual men who are seeking to, to be on this path. Have you found an alchemy with masculine anger where it can be a medicine to one's healing? hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, I'm a really strong advocate that anger isn't real, that anger is just the result of unprocessed sadness and grief and fear. And so I think that for men who feel a lot of anger, what they really feel is a lot of sadness and a lot of, a lot of grief and confusion. And they just feel a little lost. And the surface level expression of that is ah, I'm angry. But if you peel the layers back, 
that is actually the the waypoint, the the wayfinder that's going to show you exactly where you're holding hurt energy, which usually comes from our childhood, which is usually just a hurt little boy, usually just a little boy that was not given the adequate love or that was, you know, to use some of Seneca's framework, just left with one of these core wounds, feeling abandoned or betrayed or humiliated or that injustice was perpetrated upon it or, or that there was, you know, some level of wounding that was not able to be processed in the mind, the brain of an adolescent or a young child that's just been carried through life. And it's the same way as if you just put a heavy backpack on your back and just walk, eventually you're going to be like, fuck, this is heavy, right? And it takes that expression that, ah, to be able to be like, well, let me pull this thing off and see what's inside of it and see if there's anything that I'm carrying with me that's unnecessary. And I think that's what anger serves as, is it's the, the final layer of conscious repression forcing itself to the service. I'm not going to stay in here anymore so that the individual can then use their awareness to pull that thread back and see, okay, where does this actually stem from? And that certainly has been my approach. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's a one-off, like if everybody can develop that approach, but it has certainly worked for me in terms of creating a better understanding of a, what my anger is, B what it means and see how I can interact with it in a more healthy way so that it doesn't feel the need to um, explode, to, to relieve some of the pressure, if that makes sense. Alchemy being the transmission of lead into gold. And the idea here is that the lead of the anger is transformed into the gold of emotional intelligence, of deepening awareness of what it is that we are below that. And then that becomes the basis for which the transmission between man, woman, brotherhood, we can free ourselves together from the weight of that misunderstanding, that compression, by accessing the truth of our mutual sensation or that I feel sadness, you feel sadness. I feel grief, you feel grief. I feel fear, you feel fear. And just like your first roommate, we'll be in this together. 100%. 100%. And a big, a big thing that I look at is, you know, when we're little children, we really are reliant on the world. We're reliant on those who are, who are you know, ahead of us in authority, typically our parents or whoever our, our caretakers are. And as adults, sometimes we realize that there was a lack of alignment and integrity within that relationship, that whether it was because they had their own wounding that they couldn't work through or because um, they were not willing to face the responsibility of taking care of another life, that there are distortions that land in our system and in our field that then once we become aware of, become our responsibility. And I think the alchemy happens when we realize, oh, I am responsible for tuning into this love myself and for loving myself so that I can be a more loving person for others. I think that a very prevalent train of thought in our culture is that age is authority and it removes (laughs) the autism of self for youngsters. And if that's the relationship a youngster finds themselves in, that's harmful. That's a, that's a diseased relationship. Yeah. And it's, it works out well in the other case, right? If there are really healthy 
role models who have more experience in time and can drop some breadcrumbs and provide some insight like, hey, don't go there, go here, then it works out really well, right? But that is such an intentional pathway. And so many of the adults in our society don't necessarily recognize their responsibility to set that intention. You know, having kids has made this very obvious. It's like, oh, if you're not intentionally creating a pathway for them to feel safe and loved and supportive in their own autonomy, they're probably not going to accidentally discover it. That would be a pretty miraculous thing, which, hey, it happens. But as an adult, as someone who has a, a more developed conscious awareness, it is the responsibility of that person who is aware to recognize, okay, the ones who are not necessarily at this level of awareness are probably not just going to stumble across it unless they're very lucky. So I have to create a space where they can find it in a way that respects their autonomy, where I create the space here that they can come to without trying to come here, get in this space without forcing them to, to make that decision. If it's not what they feel aligned with. There's a gravity and a a sort of magnetism that goes with ritual creation. When you consciously create, what we call rites of passage. 100%. And I think part of why we have to create them is we're not conscious enough for the natural rites of passage life creates. Um, One of the things that also occurs to me in this conversation is Mark and I are martial arts lovers. And the master in a martial art relationship is continually attempting to support the autonomy of the student. And, I, you know, a lot of the stories that come to mind is there's that moment, you know, like grab the pebble from my hand where the student masters the master. And the master's like, all right, go. You're, you're on your way. And one of the things I love in Course in Miracles that I think is a great guidepost for anyone as a real teacher is attempting to teach themselves out of the situation to no longer be necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Gustavo gave me a beautiful piece of insight one time, which was that, you know, many of the lessons that you have to learn, they're learnable, but they're not necessarily teachable. I can't just tell you the answer. I can point you over there. Maybe you'll find the answer over there, but I can't just tell you what the answer is. You have to discover it for yourself and he told me the most valuable wisdom you ever gain is going to be wisdom that you learn that you can't then teach someone else. Mark, that just points to that quote you love from our podcast last week. Yeah, we had a really cool guy who was also a Marine and is now a coach, a very young man, very enthusiastic, brimming with energy, loved to tell stories. And he was racing through one of his stories and he said this quote that just was so profound. And he went right past it afterwards, but I wanted to share it with you. I became the source for what I was seeking. Mm. That's powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, there's this recognition of the, the lack of separation, right? This idea that we aren't not the divinity, right? I became the source. You could just say that. Right. And I mean, we always were. <laughs> but, but my, the recognition. my favorite my favorite quote in the philosophy of Zen Buddhism is before enlightenment chop wood carry water after enlightenment 
chop wood, carry water. And I think that's a beautiful way to summarize it as well, which is, you know, the necessary function of a human being in a collective society on a planet doesn't necessarily change based on the wisdom that they have attained, but their level of awareness in terms of the process they find themselves in that matters. And that is very important. And they will continue to slice open their finger and spill water on their shoes until they realize that their focus and attention is very valuable and the most valuable thing and can bring that into a space where they allow the harmony of nature to exist within and through and around them. And yeah, there's, there's deep. Okay, one more and then go ahead, Greg. And then we got to kind of laugh. Well, I was just thinking also, I think in that is like, you can cut your finger, you can spill water on your shoes and still be happy. That could be the change of consciousness is, Oh, look, I've cut my finger. That's part of the joys of cutting wood. You wrap it up, you bandage it and you move on. Keep on going. Absolutely. And to recognize that, you know, not only, not only is the gift of humankind to be the medicine that we seek, but also to understand that there is always a relationship of learning that exists when we interact with the world in a conscious way and that nothing is happening to us accidentally, that there is a lesson for us to take out of all things. And whether or not that lesson is beautiful and smooth and lovely or difficult and painful and awful, there's a lesson nonetheless. And to be in the allowance and the receptivity of that, I think creates a much smoother pathway with a lot less suffering. All right. So there's two things that I want to ask you before we close up. The first is if someone's feeling a strong resonance and magnetism with you as a result of listening to our conversation, what's a way that they could engage with you, connect with you, work with you? Call me, send me a text. So how zero nine, eight, five, six, zero, four, four. Say it again. Seven, two, zero, nine, eight, five, six, zero, four, four. Just reach out to me and tell me, Hey, here I am, this other person. I saw you, this other person, and we can have a conversation. All right. Now that oh, I got your number. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is the more deeper philosophical question of the day. All right. Lay it on me. Foo Fighters or Eminem? <laughs> Eminem. No question. <gasps> Why? Um, the immaculate nature at which he has mastered his control of the English language to tell a story with or without musical interface is, um, shouldn't be possible. <laughs> but if, if you want good music, I'd say Foo Fighters. If you want legendary mastery of a craft, Eminem. Yeah. It's funny. Cause we answered, we ask the question all the time and most people have a, a space that they enter, right. That's their, that's their answer. And then there's always this acknowledgement of the breadth of that. And then typically Greg and I go, yeah, and we're hoping for a collab at some point. Oh man, that would be, well, that'll, that'll break the simulation right there. Once that happens, then we found, we found the pathway to utopia on planet earth. Hey, uh, he just, um, Eminem just played with Ed Sheeran a few days ago. I saw that. Yeah. I yeah. saw that. It was super yeah. cool. Yeah. It's uh, super cool. Yeah, yeah. Eminem's one of those people who craft-wise is so far ahead of his time that it literally, there's a, some glitch 
in how the fabric of reality was constructed that he just slipped through. Well, yeah, we could we could go on and on about that, gentlemen. That's Drew. It's been so great having you on the podcast, and we'll let you know when it's about to launch. Much love to you and your family, and thank you for the work that you're doing. And I can't wait till we're working together again. I know that's coming soon. Stand by for more meetings on that one, Greg. As always, a pleasure, my friend. What a day we've had today. Yeah. Thank you, Drew. And much love to you and your family. No, it was a pleasure. I appreciate you both uh, first for opening the invitation and for just being present in this way. It's always just such a joy to connect and to expand on these different areas of, of human experience. And it's a, it's an honor to be able to share my story. And so I appreciate you guys for giving me that opportunity. And I look forward to giving you both a big hug next time I see you. Recording stopped.